Hi there, global citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you from another day in Brooklyn. It's quite hot already. So if you hear me panting, it's because the sun is doing its heat wave thing. So remember, folks, climate change is real. In another world and other parts of this country this time, my next guest is known as the Soul Food Scholar. He is an award-winning food writer, attorney, and certified barbecue judge. Two of his books, his first in 2014, Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine, One Play at a Time, and most recently in 2022, Black Smoke, African Americans, and the United States of Barbecue are the James Beard Foundation Award for Reference History and Scholarship winners. His second book, The President's Kitchen Cabinet, the story of the African Americans who have fed our first families from the Washingtons to the Obamas, was a finalist for the 2018 NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work in Nonfiction. He is also featured in the Netflix hit docuseries, High on the Hog, How African-American Cuisine Transformed America. He is currently the executive director of the Colorado Council of Churches and as such is the first African-American and first late person to hold that position. As well, he is the co-project director and lead curator for the forthcoming Proclaiming Colorado's Black History Exhibit at the Museum of Boulder, and so much more. Adrian Miller, welcome to the podcast. What up? Good to be with you. Hi. Hi, hi, hi. So let's get started. My first question is going to open a flood of gates. So where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? So I am from Denver, Colorado, which immediately loses me all street cred on the subject of soul food and barbecue. So <laughs> I have to win people back by telling them that my parents are from the South. My mom's from Chattanooga, Tennessee. My dad's from Helena, Arkansas. So these are the food traditions I grew up with eating, even in an unlikely place like the suburbs of Denver. And my craft is, I call it reviving and discovering and sharing stories of African-American food culture. And I say reviving because what I found in my research is a lot of our stories have been told. So it's not the typical situation where African-Americans have been vanished completely from history. It's just that that history was told and we haven't done a great job of keeping those stories being told. So I call myself a revivalist in that sense because I'm finding these stories of amazing African-Americans in old newspapers, magazines, books, and I'm bringing it to a 21st century audience. Mm, mm -hmm. And we love it. We love it. So Colorado, a subject that's near and dear to my heart. And so how did your family make it from the South to Colorado? So my parents arrived separately. So my uh, mom was getting away from a bad marriage in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and she already had a sister and aunt living in Denver. And so that was a logical place to go. And that, that's often what you hear with migration stories, right? People go to a place where some family's already there. And my dad uh, was in the military. So he had a, a short stint in Colorado and he just kind of liked it. And so decided to stay here. And then they met in church Campbell Chapel African Methodist Episcopal Church. And that's the church I still go to to this day. So that's how they connected. So different routes and then met in Denver. Okay, wow. So as you all know, listeners, I'm, I grew up in Colorado. So that's one of our connections. But we also have another connection, which is the same university. So Adrian and I both are Stanford University alumna. 
that's kind of the genesis of, of this conversation. We recently met at the Stanford Black Alumni Summit, which was in Washington, D.C. in the spring. And so I want to understand more about how your craft came to be. So how were you inspired to move? You know, given a little bit, give us a little bit more about your background, but prior to becoming this food writer and, and how that became your craft of reviving and, and telling those stories. Well, the short answer is unemployment. But the longer answer is, uh, so I was I was a lawyer by training. So I practiced law for about four years and I hated it. It just got to the point where I was singing spirituals in my office. So I thought, well, I need to do something else. And so I was going to open up a soul food restaurant. But then I got a chance to work for President Clinton in the White House on something called the Initiative for One America, which was an outgrowth of his initiative on race. And the whole idea behind the Initiative on Race is that if we just talk to one another and listen, we might realize that we have a lot more in common than what supposedly divides us. So um, I was at the very end of his second term when I did that job. And so at that time in my life, I wanted to be in politics. I thought I would eventually become a US Senator representing Colorado. So I was trying to get back to Colorado to start my political career. And um, the job market was really slow. I'm not even gonna tell you what shows I was watching on daytime television to pass the time. <laughs> and in depth of my depravity, I said, you know, I should read something. So I went to a local bookstore and I found this uh, book called Southern Food at Home on the Road in History by a guy named John Edgerton. And in that book, he wrote that the tribute to black achievement in American cookery has uh, yet to be written. So I thought that was interesting. The book was about 14 years old when I picked it up. So I just reached out to him. I tracked him down on the internet, reached out to him because I was just convinced that somebody had done that work. And when I connected with him, I, I asked him, I said, well, Mr. Edgerton, you wrote these words 14 years ago. Do you still think this is true? And he said, yeah, you know, for the most part, nobody's taken on the full story. So with no qualifications at all, except for eating a lot of soul food and cooking it some that's what started me on this journey. Mm. So I did make it back to Colorado. I, I was in politics because, again, uh, that's what I thought I was going to be doing. And so I was like a grad student. So after work and on weekends, I took a lot of time to just research African-American food culture in history. So I just grabbed everything I could find on African-Americans and food. And that research ultimately led to uh, my books. Interesting. So as a first-time author right? Trying to figure this out and, and come up with the story and write it. What were some of the resources that you went to? You, you try to get everything you, that you could, but in terms of determining how you would develop your voice and, and become the writer that you now are, how did you go about that? So I read 3,500 plus oral histories of formerly enslaved people. And I looked for all references for food and, and I created an index, my own index of that. I read about 500 cookbooks. About half of them were authored by African-Americans. And the reason why I read cookbooks that weren't by African-Americans is that I wanted to put soul food and other African-American food traditions in some kind of context. So I wanted to see, well, what was similar to other cuisines? Where were there possible influences? Things like that. And then um, thousands of newspaper magazine articles, because we now have companies in the Library of Congress who are digitizing these sources and talked to hundreds of people about what they thought soul food is, was, where it was going. And then because I care so deeply about my craft, I decided to eat my way through the country. <laughs> so I went to 150 soul food restaurants, 35 cities and 15 states. Wow. So yeah, that was that was pretty much the research. And then it's been ongoing ever since. But that was the main corpus that has led to the basis for all of my books, because I wrote first about soul food, 
And while I was doing that research, I came across a few stories of African-Americans who have controlled presidents. So followed that. And then I had a lot of stuff on barbecue, but followed that even more to write my third book. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to inform my, my next books, too. Okay. Okay. So we have a, a bona fide writer. So do you think that your law training and your policy work contributed to your narrative style much? Or, and would you say that that's kind of the framework for it? No, I think the I think the law training helped for my craft in the sense that it helps me to be more careful, to think more um, logically and try to organize well what I'm doing in my books. And every time I write a book, even the sub arguments, right? Because a book is an argument, right? I'm saying that, hey, I want you to see this in a different light. Like I want you to see soul food in a different light and understand how complex and beautiful it is uh, with the presidential Chefs, I wanted to say, I want you to understand that these group of people not only nourished our first families, but affected our nation, not only in terms of food, but civil rights. And then with barbecue, it's like, hey, it's messed up. Y'all can't talk about barbecue without acknowledging African-American contributions. And so uh, an argument requires logic. And I know that's not as fashionable these days. Uh, A lot of times argument passes for emotional gut appeals, Mm -hmm. and that's Mm -hmm. enough. But um, in an argument, you have to figure out, okay, what's the point I'm trying to make? What's the evidence to support that point? And then how can I marshal the evidence in a persuasive way to make my point and try to persuade the person to agree with me? And so law school definitely helped me to think critically about things. And then I think the rest of my, and then and then there's a scholarly feel to it that comes from having been in law school mm-hmm. and also being a nerd. And then the other part of it is just rounding it out with my personality and humor because I wanted, I want people to feel like when they're reading my books, like they're sitting down and chilling and just talking to me. And I want the material to be access, uh, accessible. And uh, so those, all of those things are really important to me. So yeah, the, so being in law school definitely helped shape me as a writer. But I would say a, a lot of other things came into being sure. to give my craft a certain vibe. Sure, 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 sure. Makes a lot of sense. So let's take another step. In the time, so you were in Washington, D.C., and you wanted to get back because you had political aspirations in Colorado. And so we know that that's kind of the why, the where of it. But let's drill down into the grand state of Colorado, our colorful land. Tell us a little bit more about why the where. So how did you come to be working, playing and living where you currently reside and live and where you're where you're doing your work specifically? Yeah. So I I returned to Colorado to get into politics. That was the main motivation. And that's not something I want to do now. Mm -hmm. So uh, my current day job, uh, because this writing stuff is very fun, but until very recently, it wasn't lucrative. Um, Mm. So that's changing. But my day job is I run something called the Colorado Council of Churches, which is Mm. an organization that gets church folks to get to know each other beyond their denominational silos. And then we collectively do social justice work. So that's the day job. So that keeps me rooted in community here. And not only am I an advocate for African-American food culture, especially how it plays out in a place like Colorado, but I'm becoming known increasingly as a Colorado food advocate, Mm. uh, Mm -hmm. particularly a barbecue. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I feel connected to this place. Um, It's home. It's a beautiful place. It's grown. Denver has grown a lot but it's still the place that I call home the most. I can't imagine living in too many other places voluntarily. Mm -hmm, Right. (laughs) Yeah. What part of the city are you in? I'm in the southern part of the city. So the closest big kind of intersection would be Hamden and I-25. Okay, South Denver. Yeah, so very southern edge, right on the 
border with the Denver Tech Center. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. We know we know that area. You have a clear view of the mountains as in most of Denver. Yep. So quite nice. Okay. So your work in the day job space is actually quite interesting. So how did you find yourself in in that work in terms of running this organization? And how are you finding, particularly in the current political climate, you know, spiritual climate, all those things, how are you seeing that work evolve over time? So it started out with my work in politics. So when I when I got back to Denver, I worked at a think tank, progressive think tank called the Bell Policy Center. And so I did outreach work. And so being a person of faith, I felt like the progressive part of our political spectrum in the United States often it shies away from forming bonds with people of faith. I think there's a wrong assumption that people of faith are extremely conservative and not interested in progressive values, which, you know, like any group of humans, there's going to be a spectrum. And so I thought it was really important for progressive people to, and, and progressive policymakers to connect with progressive people of faith. So I started that work and then I continued that when I was working for Governor Ritter. And it was really in those years of doing outreach that I connected to the Colorado Council of Churches and found them to be allies on a lot of important issues. And then after my stint with Governor Ritter ended, the guy who was running the Colorado Council of Churches said, hey, you know, you ought to think about applying for uh, my position. I'm going to retire. And I was like, no, come on. No, I'm not a preacher. And uh, he said, no, you don't have to be. You just have to have a heart for social justice, which is what you do. So I just applied because I thought, well, this guy thinks so much of me. I need to actually apply. And then I ended up getting the job, much to my surprise. So. So you you mentioned that in in this in the sense of you know being a writer you have to have a day job in some cases and so the economics and the process of actually getting your books published so you did all this research it was your passion project you thought is very interesting so how then did you find the right publisher and I'm wondering are you with the same publisher the right publisher and the right team to work with you to get these stories out. So I lucked out, you know, because for, for a lot of first-time writers, especially someone who does not have a reputation in a field, mm-hmm. it's hard to get a literary agent who will shop your book to publishers. And it's even harder to get a publisher interested in you directly without going through a literary agent. So I had um, joined and I was part of something called the Southern Foodways Alliance. Mm. And I was doing some programming for them and I gave a very short speech on why red red drinks are significant to African-Americans. And after that, a senior editor at the University of North Carolina Press named Elaine Maisner came up to me and, and said, hey, I want to talk to you about your book. Because one thing that I did, and some people don't do this, but every every chance I got, I told people I'm working on a book on the history of soul food. And you know, I always encourage writers. I say, look, just share your dream because you never know what's going to happen. And, and people are told to keep things close to the vest because, you know, there, there are times when people steal your idea and run with it. And so I don't want to minimize that because that does happen. But I think at some point you have to have confidence that you're the only one that can tell the story that you want to tell. So because of that, Elaine Maisner from University of North Carolina Press, who would eventually become my editor and University of North Carolina Press would become my publisher, that led to a book deal. And the other thing that happened is I got a literary in- agent indirectly. So there's a place called Zingerman's Deli in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. And so uh, the guy, one of the founders of that company, Ari, comes to the Southern Foodways Alliance every year. And so he heard my thing and he said, oh, hey, you know, we do an African-American dinner every year at Zingerman's. So we would love to have you be the speaker. And so in preparation for that event, they do a lengthy 
uh, interview of who the speaker is going to be. And so this uh, newsletter gets sent all around the world. They send their products all around the world. And so a literary agent in New York read that interview of me and said, oh, well, this guy sounds interesting and asked for permission to contact me. And then he became my agent for the first book. Okay. So I'm, I no longer have an agent, right? At least not right now. Okay. Um, I've represented myself on the last two books. Sure. And, you know, so that, that's been an inter- interesting journey as well. So that, that's how it happened. So and, and I've been unusual in the sense that I had people come to me. Not a lot of people, mm-hmm. but some. And, 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 you know, sometimes one is enough. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I use that as an, a, an example of it. good things can happen if you share your dream. I agree with that. I think we have to believe that, as you mentioned, we your idea, you have this unique perspective. And so sure, someone might have it, but your vision is yours. So if you really believe in it and understand it, then no one can steal it and no one's going to incarnate it the way that you envision it. So yeah. So let me ask this. Why are red drinks so important in African-American culture? Well, I think that red Kool-Aid is the official soul food drink. Okay. In Black culture, we understand that red is a color and a flavor when it comes to food. Uh-huh. So the we have two ancestral red drinks that crossed the Atlantic during the era of the slave trade, uh, African slave trade. And so uh, one is cola. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in a lot of West African countries, there's a cola net, a red cola net tea. There are white cola nuts and red cola nuts. Mm-hmm. And so as a hospitality drink, you will be offered a red cola net tea where basically you get some water, put some red cola nuts in it and sweeten it to taste. Mm-hmm. And then also hibiscus. There are several West African countries that have a hibiscus based drink that goes by different names, um, depending on where you are. Uh, Zobo. Sobolo. Uh, Bisap. Yeah. Mm-hmm, Sobolo. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, just it just depends on where you are. And so that drink comes across the Atlantic um, and gets transplanted in Jamaica, where it's called Sorrel. And I'm yep. not sure why that name changed. And uh, it, for a long time, it was a, just a Christmas time drink yep. uh, associated with festive uh, activities. But my understanding now is that it's pretty much a year round drink every day. It's a very common drink now, and that spread around the um, Caribbean and into South and Central America. And uh, Latino people have uh, embraced it. So. You can go to a taqueria here in the U.S. and ask for agua de Jamaica, Jamaica water, and you're drinking a riff off a West African drink. And so that's the background. And so fast forward to the American South. When you uh, look at all of these accounts of social gatherings of African-Americans, whether enslaved or free, there usually is some red colored drink that is lubricating that that social event. And it just shows up. It's like it could be red lemonade. Uh, red Kool-Aid, a, a, car- a carbonated beverage, uh, you know, hibiscus drinks, all, all these things are showing up. And I don't think that's by accident. Right. Some people have mused aloud, you know, why red? And one a common explanation that I had, and I, I think people are speculating, we don't really, really know, is that red represents the blood shed by our enslaved ancestors. And so it's a way of honoring them, even though we have, you know, years later, when we have when we come together for some kind of social function. Mm, interesting. I like the the connection that you've made to kind of our West African roots, which brings me to your high on the hog experience. So I don't know if listeners if you've seen the show. It's a great program on Netflix. And that journey of that conversation starts in Africa. And Adrian is a contributor on a few of the episodes in terms of the soul food and, and things like that. So tell us a little bit more about your understanding and part of the journey of some of the, the dishes that you understand have been transported and maintained from our African roots into the soul food tradition. 
Yeah, so as much as colonizing Europeans tried to obliterate the humanity of enslaved Africans, you know, they didn't arrive here as blank slates. They came here as people with identities, with traditions, uh, and food was certainly one of them. And what we find is that over the course of the Atlantic slave trade, there are various African ingredients that get brought to the Americas and incorporated into the diet. So a very short list would be black-eyed peas, hibiscus, okra, watermelon, a type of rice. There was a reddish rice that's native to um, West Africa that's brought over here, sorghum, millet. There's also sesame seeds that aren't native there, but they were part of uh, West African cuisine. So we, we find all of these West African ingredients uh, showing up here, and we find iterations of some of the things that were made. So for instance, and th these are my assertions, right? Jambalaya is very similar to yolof rice. Is it jolof mm -hmm. or yolof rice? How do you, do you know how to pronounce it correctly? Jolof. Jolof, okay. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, very similar. The gumbos of New Orleans are very similar to the seafood okra soups mm -hmm. of West Africa. And uh, things like akara, which was a black-eyed pea fritter, to me is, I think, a, a definite influencer for hush puppies. Because mm, uh, mm -hmm. they're very similar in look yep. and everything. Because when you when you do the black IP fritters, you peel off the outer skin, right? So mm -hmm. you have this whitish thing. So you see all of these influences showing up. Jollof rice, I think, also influences the red rice of Savannah, Georgia, which is a mm -hmm. very famous local dish. And so a lot of the work that I've done is to try to figure out what comes from Africa. How does it get adapted here without change? And then how does it get adapted with changes? And then how do enslaved Africans and later enslaved African-Americans find substitutes for the things they were used to back home? Oh, and I'm sorry, uh, another example would be uh, there was a type of catfish and tilapia, which are native to West Africa. So when enslaved Africans come here and they see catfish in the rivers, like, oh, that looks familiar mm -hmm. or another fish, fish species. So we, we see a lot of uh, similarities there. And, you know, an example of something where there was a substitution is uh, greens are huge in West African cuisines, and it's really a part of, of African-American cuisine. And so uh, we, you couldn't get the tropical greens over here because, you know, you're dealing with a temperate climate. And so we find that our enslaved African ancestors substituted the bitter greens of Europe for the greens that they were used to in West Africa. And so instead of getting bitter leaf, in West Africa, now you're using collards, mustard, kale, right. turnip, right. cabbage, that kind of thing. So that's the raw ingredients part. And then those are examples of some dishes. And then we look at the cooking techniques, mm -hmm. you know, the combination of kind of uh, meat and vegetables in one pot meals, the blurring of the lines between savory and sweet, the use of certain techniques, uh, deep frying traditions, things like that. All of that stuff shows up in the American South, a, a love for chickens, Pork was forced on us in, in here in the Americas because that was not something indigenous to the West Africa. So it, right. it's just been a fascinating journey to just discover how the ingredients, culinary traditions, and techniques of West Africa, Western Europe, and the Americas all come together in the American South and create these things like soul food, Creole food, low country cuisine, all of those things. Makes a lot of sense. So speaking of localities as well, I have what I call my glocal speak question. So we want to hear what you hear. And I ask you to share a word, a phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value it as glocal speak. So one thing that I, I love that's local speak here in Colorado is a phrase called ways out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, don't, you don't hear it in a lot of other places. It you really like, don't. 
yeah, I'm just kidding. And I just love that phrase. And I don't know how it came out. Yeah, you're cracking up because, you know, you, it's bringing back memories. Yeah. But, you know, it, it's a Black people's phrase here. And I don't know how it came about. Yeah. But that's just one of the things that I love. Yeah, in Colorado. So that that's the thing that immediately came to mind. When yeah, that. I love it. That's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> and I haven't heard it in years. And so it's so funny. Yeah, that's a good one. Ways out. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, nobody says it now either. I, I can't it's say true. that I've heard it. So it's, it's in memory. It's like, it was something that it seemed was said in the 70s and 80s. Yes, I think by the 90s, it was phased out. Because I remember- my sister's friends, that was something that one one in particular, that was her, that was her go-to word. And so, cause she was a jokester as well. So yeah. So yeah. Wow. I think it's time to bring that back. Yeah, I think so. Cause it's, I mean, it's cute. It's a cute saying. So yeah, I mm-hmm. like that one. Nice. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about some of your current projects. So this new project that your, your latest book, no, let's, let's start with your latest book which was recently awarded a James Beard Award. Congratulations. Thank you. And so tell us more about this barbecue cred that you now have. Like you mentioned Colorado doesn't have barbecue, but I remember so many barbecue traditions. Like one of my girlfriends, her father owned Sam Taylor's Barbecue, which is at the City Park Golf Course and then moved to Cherry Creek. They've recently, he's retired, so that's closed down. There are so many, so many. So tell us more about your Colorado barbecue experience and then how that is now this, you know, more international, national role for you. Oh, and let me clarify. So Colorado has always had barbecue. I guess the thing is that we just don't, we aren't known for it. Sure. And we, we've had African-Americans doing barbecue since the eight, mid-1800s. And uh, we have long, long traditions and, and actually small world moments. So Sam Taylor and his wife went to my church. Oh, okay. So, so I probably know your girlfriend. Um, yeah, Jaina. So, yeah. Shout so, out to Jaina um, and Seth. <laughs> yeah. And so it's been it's been really interesting to talk about the legacy of barbecue in Colorado, to talk about people like Columbus B. Hill, who in the late 1800s was doing barbecues for 25,000 people in central Denver, to talk about people like Daddy Bruce, longtime barbecue uh, people in Denver, and his son as well, mm-hmm. who did a lot to shape barbecue in his state. Also, people like Sam Taylor, a beloved spot. Winston Hill, former New York Jets offensive lineman who ran a spot. And now his daughters are carrying on that legacy. So, yeah, there's a lot of barbecue culture here. And the um, interesting thing about Colorado barbecue is we were known for bison and lamb. So Colorado was known for lamb so much that if you went to a knowledgeable butcher and asked for a Denver rack, they would give you lamb ribs. And for whatever reason, we just got away from that heritage. I'm trying to actively bring it back. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to engage some entities so we can have a contest to create a signature Colorado barbecue dish. Okay. Yeah, I like that. Either, it, it'll either be lamb or bison. Maybe one of each. We'll see. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. bison makes a lot of sense because it's, it's very local. Yeah. So we had restaurants here, um, not only in Denver, but up and down the front range. There was a guy, Melvin, I can't remember his last name, but there was a guy in for years in Fort Collins, people in Colorado Springs, especially with the military. Mm-hmm. You had a lot of people coming in and out, barbecue joints there, Pueblo. And then, you know, all over the place, you got the brother and sister just on the side of the road doing their thing. And then barbecue culture was very rich in church. A lot of black churches would have fundraisers or build community through barbecue. There was a church on the corner of Colorado Boulevard in 26th that every Saturday during the warm months, yep. they would have barbecue. They would just set That's up a That's my cell. corner. Yeah. yeah. 
I don't think I don't know if we do that still. Um, no, not anymore. Okay. Yeah. Um, is that is that because the church changed um, that closed? Yeah, and there was. Church? So I mean, there was a, a huge transition. I think of you know I want to call it the gentrification, but the church. Yeah, the church. The church management. The church. I think it changed. It was guess. Uh, guess Gethsemane. Yeah. Gethsemane. Yes, that church. And so yeah, that's my corner right by the city park um, golf course. And so, yeah, every Sunday, big to do, a little bit of traffic sometimes. And yeah, since the that that whole four corners, since there was a redevelopment of the houses that were catty corner that changed. And so I think they own some property and just sold the church or something. So yeah, it's not the same anymore. So yeah, so, you know, you've got that kind of part of the culture too. But I, I tell people, barbecue was not a huge deal in my own upbringing. We, as a family, we had barbecue really just Memorial Day, 4th of July, Labor Day, and maybe a few times during the year. But I eat far more more barbecue now than I did growing up. Mm. I mean, it was a beloved part of our culture, but it was not like um, a main part of it. Right. I think a little bit is just kind of the changing of lifestyle. I think people's lifestyles have moved outside more. So people are grilling, you know, on a daily basis in in the summer sometimes. So so you're just having more of that happening. And I think socializing has changed a bit. So there's just more Saturday city park barbecues, that type of thing that's going on. Well, the other thing is just barbecue is hugely popular, much Mm -hmm. more than it was 30, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. That's true, too hugely popular. I mean, the number of barbecue restaurants that we have now compared to 30 years ago is just staggering. So true. Yeah, that is true. And so if you were to kind of try to pinpoint why that potentially is, is in looking at an industry perspective, would would there be an industry impetus or, and in which part would it be the suppliers or would it be the food, like the chefs, the, the restaurant culture? What would you say? It's television. Oh, okay. So, so yeah. the food net, yeah, the Food Network mm-hmm. uh, emphasis on barbecue programming, making turning fine dining chef Bobby Flay into a barbecue mm-hmm. expert. Mm-hmm. You know the shows that he ran in 2004. They started really doing a push on barbecue programming, and they've done that ever since. And then the other game changer was Discovery Channels. Well, I don't know if it was on Discovery Channel, but anyway, Barbecue Pitmasters. Mm, that show uh, yeah. tremendously ignited, in, in, pun intended, ignited interest in barbecue uh, to the to the point where you have so many people at home now inspired by competition barbecue. They're doing it at home. They're getting into competitions, and that has spilled over into restaurant culture as well. Because what what you what you find is that if somebody wins on the competitive circuit they'll they'll open up a barbecue restaurant. And the thing is, is that with the cooking that you do on the competitive barbecue circuit is different than what you do in a restaurant. Because in a competition, you're trying to create that one perfect bite. Mm-hmm. And so you cook a bunch of food and then you look for the very best and that's what you present to the judges. And it's just different than cooking at scale at a restaurant. You know, most people make the transition, but a lot of people don't. Yeah. So thinking about barbecue and the, the culture of that kind of outdoor grill cooking, in your experience, just kind of looking at food globally, does any culture compare to the American barbecue concept? <laughs> That's an interesting question. So here's what I'm observing. American-style barbecue is being exported abroad, and there, it's popping up in a lot of places. Like in the Middle East, I've been to five countries in the Middle East. They all have somebody doing barbecue. 
and everybody's pretty much doing Texas style because mm, mm-hmm. that's the that's kind of the in vogue style of barbecue right now. I was in Dublin, Europe. There were five American style barbecue places alone. And I hear about Europe, you know, other parts of Europe, like Germany, France, Australia. So uh, it's interesting to see that our barbecue is becoming more and more popular abroad. But in terms of this idea of grilling meat over wood or charcoal, a lot of cultures do that. Yeah. You know, you see it, you just see it all over the place. So I, I think about like, for instance, in West Africa, you've got this uh, skewer tradition, which I think is probably influenced by Arab traders coming there in mm-hmm. the, you know, during the early history of that place. But, you know, these skewers uh, go by different names, like uh, suya um, and other, yeah, it depends on. Yeah, that. kebab. Yeah, we just call them kebab and suya. Yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, that, you know, in the Middle East, they've got the whole shish kebab thing mm-hmm. and the, um, I, I forgot what you call it, but they have the, like the spin. Yeah, the shawarma. Shawarma, that's it. Japan, you've got yakitori. In Argentina, you've got those grilling conditions that are asado. So you, you've got all of these things. Now, now I, I get a little miffed when people call all of that barbecue because I, I don't. I, I think mm. barbecue is a specific thing from yeah. the U.S., but I, I think it's too hard to unring that bell now. Everybody's yeah. calling everything barbecue. So yeah, yeah, we've got we've got a lot of meat grilling and uh, meat smoking and cooking traditions under the umbrella of barbecue that are playing out in interesting ways around the world. But I have to say what we do in the U.S., that's the thing that's capturing people's imagination right now. Yeah. Interesting, because I remember watching, I think it still goes on, a part of this TV culture is Bry Masters or something. And that was from South Africa. So so I think in that part of the world, it was Bry. And that was, you know, that was just meat without much flavor. It was just like, how do you do them tenderly or whatever? So, so yeah, I, I hear you. I think American barbecue probably crowded out the Bry to some extent. But, you know, in the Southern Africa, they still probably see Bry as there. Yeah, yeah. As much as, yeah, as much as the American um, barbecue is growing in popularity, people still love their local mm-hmm. meat cooking traditions. So, yeah. you know, like I was in Oman and I went to a really good barbecue place. And, you know, it was that's really, there were maybe like two others, but there are a ton of the traditional meat skewer places that also called themselves barbecue. So, um, yeah, people are holding on to the traditions. I got to check out the Bry Masters, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Try it. Yeah, check it out. <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> So let me ask you a question about mindset. What is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? So this is one that you can imagine, one that you know of, one that you practice, something that resets your mind. I think um, one of the important ones for me is just imagining a positive outcome because there's so much negative programming that we get in our lives. And instead of thinking of something and thinking, oh, that's not going to work, you know, there's so many reasons. But think about, oh, this is going to be great. This is how this could happen. And look how this is going to change things. And so focusing on the positive mm-hmm. has allowed me to grow. And, you know, you need to encourage it along the way, because, again, we get a lot of negative messages, not only from ourselves, but other people. Like, I can't tell you how much shade I got in the early days of writing my book. People are like, you went to Stanford. Why are you writing a book on soul food? Other people like soul food. That that is not that's not worthy of any kind of celebration. That's slave yes. food. Wow. You know, so many negative messages, and so you have to be positive. You have to, um, you know, something singing to your soul. You need to respond to that, and that'll fuel you. So I think the the biggest hack for me has just been reframe. Even when I hear the negative voices, reframing it into a positive way. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. I was listening to a podcast just yesterday and um, the woman was saying, she's a, a medic and Ayurvedic um, practitioner. And she was saying, you know, one thing that we don't do enough of is just allow ourselves to think organically. So allow the organic thinking. And, and so I, our tendency, what happens is if we think negative thoughts, we're reprogramming everything that we hear to kind of follow that trajectory. And, and so we, we miss a lot of things. Similarly, sometimes when we, we are thinking positive thoughts, we allow too many things to program it that way. And then we get blindsided by, by the other things that are there. But to the extent that you've reframed it by saying, imagine this and you've you've seen something play out, it is organic because it's part of, you know, the the organism that is you that is visualizing this story for yourself that that makes a lot of sense. And then it speaks deeply to your core in that regard. So I like that one. That's a good one. Cool. Okay, so let's turn the conversation a little bit into you mentioned about the, the kind of the naysayers, the people who are like, oh, well, you did this. Well, why are you why are you writing this this particular story or what have you? What is next? So what is your next work? So you've, you've, you've come and you've mentioned that you have some other projects that are in mind and, and coming forth. What's the next? So one thing I'm thinking about a lot is a history of African-American street vendors and um, an exploration of how they shape the food scenes of a lot of our major cities. Mm-hmm. So it would not only be talk about the foods they sold, the composed dishes they sold, the foods they introduced, they, the foods they popularized, they would talk about their business acumen, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how they represented African culture in the way they dressed, the way they sang their street cries, the food that they sold. And the white observers often were, you know, making fun of them or talking about how weird they were and stuff. But that, that's because they weren't interpreting the Africanness of what, um, properly interpreting, I would say, the Africanness of what these street vendors brought. Because when we look at connections to West Africa, we can see, oh, there's a reason why they were wearing that color when they were selling, because they believed it would give them good fortune because their spiritual practice told them that. And so, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. And then I want to have like maybe a compendium piece of music that would include the street cries of these street vendors, because believe it or not, back in the 1700s, 1800s, somebody took the time to write down the street cries and apply them to scales. So we have the sheet music, basically, of the street cry. So it's just a matter of finding somebody today who can sing those songs and we can bring that back to life. And you can feel what it was like in 1880s New Orleans to be on the street and have this person want you to buy their akara or their pralines or whatever it was. Right. Wow. That's so interesting. Yeah, I think so, too. I think people will dig it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm because it's a fascinating thing. And there's just some super interesting characters like I, um, one of, one of my favorite stories is there was a guy in Philadelphia who was named as the, who was called the old hominy man. And evidently, evidently he had a very rich baritone and he would just walk around Philadelphia with this big old pail of hominy. For those who don't know, it's basically like corn grits. Yeah. Like not exactly the same. And, you know, he was known for that. And some of these uh, street vendors were, were such great entrepreneurs that some of them were quite wealthy. I mean, one of the most popular examples is a woman named nicknamed Pigfoot Mary. Her real name was Lillian Harris. She made so much money off selling pig feet uh, on the streets of Harlem that she was able to acquire property, substantial property, and have a lot of money. Wow! You know, so this was a this was a way for people to have a very comfortable life. 
And in your place of telling the story of food, because food is so important to people, you know, and part of the challenge, you know, I would think that some of the, the, the blowback that you would give is that, oh, soul food's not healthy. You know, why are you promoting it? This type this, that and the other. So so how do you kind of contend with like the idea that there there are health challenges and, and really kind of setting the story or maybe changing some of the the ideas around how do we make soul food healthy or do we make soul food healthy? Is it moderation? What have you? What are what are some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, so this is to me a function of the unfortunate narratives that have been aimed at soul food. So, so mm-hmm. one is that this is slave food, not worthy of celebration, which is part of the story. But if you actually look at soul food's history, it's much more complex. Yeah. You know, you, you're weaving in the food traditions of three places, West Africa, Western Europe, and the Americas. Mm-hmm. And so it's not all just about what enslaved people ate. You know, I, I think soul food is really more about what African-Americans encountered food-wise when they left the South for other parts of the country. Mm. And that interaction, I think, is more about soul food. Because I, I think soul food and Southern food overlap in many ways, but there are differences. One example, the soul food and Southern food. Uh, soul food would be the difference between having canned peaches where you could have soul, uh, peach cobbler all year round, mm-hmm. and then being in the South and having fresh peaches and only having peach cobbler during a certain part of the year. And I borrowed that from Edna Lewis. So. I dispel that in my book. The second thing is this idea that soul food needs a warning label, that it's going to kill you. Mm-hmm. If you go back and look at what enslaved, first of all, you just look at what our Western African ancestors ate, very plant-based. Meat was not a huge part of the diet. Right. A lot of the stuff, very, very healthy. And then if you look at what enslaved African-Americans ate, uh, very close to what we call vegan today, mm-hmm. because um, the mores of slave society were that African-Americans were not worthy of getting processed ingredients or prestigious cuts of meat. Mm-hmm. And so they only had very limited access to these things, usually on the weekends or uh, for special occasions. So uh, for the most part, people were eating seasonal vegetables, water. If there was meat, it was re- really to season the vegetables. It was not an entree as we kind of think about it. So you've got that context, right? So I, I try to get that history out. Then, even after slavery ends, the obesity rates that we see today, although there, there was obesity in the Black community, was not at the rates that we see today. So what changed? It's our food system. We, as everybody in this country, we now have access to very cheap calories, and we have an abundant of, abundance of them. And that's when you start to see the obesity rates and other things skyrocket. So as much as soul food gets blamed, I tell people, I think you're not giving a full picture. Right. Because I think a lot of the people that are suffering health consequences, it's because of the consumption of fast food, cheap food, convenience food, junk food. All of that stuff, I think, is in the mix. So I think that's part of the story. And then the other thing is, uh, why why aren't environmental factors being considered? You don't think being subjected to systemic racism 24-7 doesn't have an effect on your health. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing I'll say to this is that if you listen to what nutritionists are telling us to eat, more dark leafy greens, more sweet potatoes, more fish, uh, hibiscus, okra is a superfood. It's all the building blocks of our cuisine. So it's a matter of how this food is prepared. It's a matter of right. the totality of what people are eating, the lifestyle that they're leading. So I, I think that soul food is getting a bad rap. I think it's a lot other a lot of other things are at play. Right. So we just need to let the kids know that there's, you know, by reading your books, by educating them on these things, how to transition and change the narrative in that way. 
yeah, you don't have to eat chips and soda all the time. You can, mm -hmm. uh, and more kids are cooking now because of TV shows, right? So you can get in the kitchen, you can make some greens, you can make um, plant-based stuff. Vegan and vegetarian is the hottest trend in soul food right now. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of creativity in those spaces. So I, my hope is that we start to reconnect to the foods of our past and embrace the exciting things that chefs are doing now to create ways to create healthy food that's enjoyable, fun, and fun to eat. Yeah, nice. I like that. So Adrian, tell us who who is the Adrian that's not writing, that's not a scholar, that's not researching. I like to ask this question, which is, are you a reader, a watcher, or a listener? And what are some of your favorite reads, watches, or listens in your spare time? Uh, yeah, all of the above. So uh, I, I'm a, a real nerd when it comes to food history. So a lot of times I'm reading more cookbooks, like historically bent cookbooks. But these days, I'm trying to learn more about West African food. And it's a challenge because West African societies tend to be more about oral traditions. And so, uh, you know, there's not a lot of people just writing stuff down and creating cookbooks. So there aren't, especially in English, so there aren't a lot of sources available. I'm trying to get all of those sources. And with the increased availability of West African ingredients, because we have more and more West African stores now in places like Denver, or really Aurora, you know, I have chance, I have access to those ingredients. So now I can actually start making these dishes. So I want to start making these foods. Um, so I'm, um, I'm, I, I'm going to mispronounce the cookbook, so I'm not even going to try. But just the, the, I'm reading more and more cookbooks and um, still like food histories. I gravitate to people who are doing really good, interesting work because I think it helps inform my work. It makes me better. When it comes to watching TV, I'm a big sci-fi fan. So I watch a lot of Star Trek. Mm -hmm. uh, the original series. That was my that was my first love. I, I watched news, not as much as I did in the past, but I do watch news. I, I think, you know, I noticed that I watch a lot more reruns than I should. I start watching <laughs> They're like all over the place, though, you know, like I'll just be doing some mindless and the Jeffersons are on and I'll just be like, yeah. I remember the Jeffersons. Yeah. So, you know, you start singing that song. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So that that kind of stuff. Uh, and then, yeah, but so so, what is your go-to rerun, or what are some of your favorite reruns? I watch a lot of Law and Order, so mm -hmm. the regular series, and then the Criminal Intent series. I never watched a lot of S SVU, but so I watch a lot of Order, uh, Star Trek, all the iterations of Star Trek. What else do I watch a lot? I watch Criminal Minds, but then I don't know. I started feeling like I was getting affected by that. All the evil mm. that people so I, I, I kind of cut back on that one. Right. Uh, and then the other thing is I'm just a big sports guy. So um, mainly basketball. But, yeah, I'm a big sports guy. And I, I watch a lot of – I watch and listen to a lot of sports talk radio. Uh -huh. Okay. And then in terms of listening, most of my musical tastes are – besides talk radio and, you know, national, uh, national public radio, things like that for news and other things. I, my musical tastes are frozen in the late 1980s early 1990s. So listening to tunes from that era. Got it. So we'll, we'll have a little link to some playlists from the 80s and 90s and, uh, and, and help our, and so all this will be in the show notes, folks, as always. We'll have rich show notes actually this time. Adrian has given us a lot of food for thought. So be sure to check out the show notes. So Adrian, this has been wonderful. I really appreciate your time and your insights into food culture. So before we sign off for today, do you have any last thoughts to share with the audience? You know, for uh, aspiring writers, um, like I said earlier, you share your dream. The second thing is to do the work. 
there's a lot of people taking shortcuts and making up stuff. And mm. in our time, because there's such a flood of information, it saddens me that people do that because they, they kind of know that nobody's going to take the time to really check sources and stuff. So, you know, do the work, share the dream. And then the other thing is just really you need to believe in yourself, yeah. especially if there's something that's singing to your soul. Try to pursue that as best you can, but do not give up the day job until you're making enough money with the dream. Right. Do not give right. up the day job. Exactly. Exactly. That is that is a wise, wise sentiment. So thank you for that. All right, listeners, this has been another episode of the podcast. You can catch us each and every Tuesday with new episodes at GlocalCitizensPod.com or wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Google, Amazon, Spotify, you get the drift. Leave us a review, tell a friend, it helps people find good content. And you can find Adrian at Soul Food Scholar, I think on all platforms, right, Adrian? That's right. Yes. So check out the Soul Food Scholar and his website, which is his name, or just clarify, because I think there might be a middle initial in there, or is it? Yeah, there's an E, because there's our, there's another Adrian Miller. Can you believe that? So there's an Adrian E, <laughs> but if you just do soulfoodscholar.com, it'll, it'll get you to the same place. There we go. Soul Food Scholar. Wonderful. So yes, check us out, folks. And until next time, bye for now.